0: Good evening, everybody. My name is Sanjeev Arora, and I'm the chair of the Public Lectures Committee at Princeton University. And uh, I welcome you to tonight's lecture by Professor Gerald Galloway. Uh, tonight's lecture is, is uh, funded by the Lewis Clark Bannockham Foundation, which was founded in 1912 with a bequest of 25,000 under the will of Lewis Clark Bannockham of the class of 1879. He, uh, Mr. Venexen uh, pursued a career in insurance and eventually specialized in insurance law. He died in 1903. And the fund he started with this tiny bequest has, over the years, brought many famous people to campus, including Edwin Hubble, Thomas Mann, Ralph Ellison, and Carl Sagan. Uh, the, the lecture will be introduced tonight by Professor David Bellington of the Department of Civil Engineering. Uh, many of, I see some students here might know Professor Billington as one of the popular lecturers on campus. uh, He has had honorary degrees from Union College, Grinnell College, and Notre Dame, and his research interests include design and rehabilitation of bridges, tin shell concrete structures, tall buildings, and concrete dams. Please welcome Professor Billington.
1: Thank you. Um, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce uh, Professor Galloway. Uh, I'm at a stage now where I can introduce former students who are uh, also retired from one profession and started another. Uh, Jerry Galloway uh, graduated from West Point in the middle 50s and then served for several, so about four years, uh, in Germany, graduated from West Point as an officer, of course, in the Corps of Engineers. He came to Princeton in 1961 when I was beginning to teach and I had him in, uh, in my course in structural design. Uh, he still thinks I graded him too low on one of his exams and uh, I don't know whether he brought it with you this time but I promised I will review it at some point. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, I used to tell him that I would review it but it might be lower. Uh, But no longer. I'm now guaranteeing it'll be higher. Uh, Well, he went on. His education continued. He also has a master's degree from Penn State and from the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College and a Ph.D. from the University of North Carolina. Uh, he has a long and distinguished career in the Corps of Engineers, 38 years in the military, where he served in Germany, in Southeast Asia, and frequently in the United States. At the end of his career, he, be, he went to uh, West Point, where we met him once again, and uh, he became uh, a professor of, uh, of uh, geography and computer science and then became the founding head of the Department of Geography and Environmental Engineering. He went on to become dean, which is uh, uh, the highest academic uh, officer at uh, West Point. And in 1995, he retired from uh, the Army uh, into his other uh, careers. He's been a consultant to all kinds of organizations, and although I don't want to read them all, uh, that would de- deprive him of his uh, speaking time, but I just thought I would mention two of them because they are uh, such, in- such important things for our country. One of them is uh, these, he served as a secretary of the United States section of the International Joint Commission in Washington, D.C., which prevents and resolves disputes between the United States and Canada under the 1909 Boundary Waters Treaty. That seems to be very important. Keep Canada from invading the United States, and uh, that you... Uh, and the second thing, which, uh, which uh, we knew about a lot, and that is the great flood of 1993 in the Upper Mississippi River, and uh, he served as or he was it was really a presidential commission and he wrote the report we refer to it as the Galloway report on that uh, 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 horrendous flood uh, of 1993 and with many recommendations which we hope at some point will be fully implemented uh, so i'm uh, really honored to have the chance to Introduce Jerry Galloway uh, as one of our most distinguished alumnus and uh, one of uh, the country's most distinguished uh, engineers uh, in practice today. Thank you.
2: We have a commercial message. Uh,
0: Sorry, I forgot to make this announcement. Our technical staff would like you to turn off your cell phones and any, any similar devices because they interfere with the wireless microphone. Thank you.
2: Okay. <laughs> give, give up the BlackBerry. Uh, thank you very much. It's an honor to have Professor Billington introduce me. Uh, I, I really do. I've carried that paper for uh, 45 years and uh, I still look at it and wonder I didn't even understand anything. I was lucky to get out of that class. It was a wonderful class, but it was pretty complex for a, a guy that had just spent the last four years in the Army uh, running around Europe, uh, bulldozing things, blowing up things, building bridges, and to come and do this very sophisticated design of thin-shell structures was uh, quite a challenge. Great year, uh, great opportunity here at uh, Princeton. What I want to talk to you all No, he, he knows. Um, What I want to talk to you about tonight is what President Bush is quoted as saying in in one of the Woodward books as that vision thing, Uh, thinking ahead as to what we want to do, uh, knowing where you're going and how you're going to get there. And I'm going to cast it in terms of something that I think most of us are familiar with, all too familiar, and that's the issue of Katrina. Katrina was a wake-up call for this country in my book for the way we treat our natural resources and how we deal with the challenges in the water arena in particular when you look at pictures like this this happens to be along the Mississippi Gulf Coast that's a casino Uh, in in Mississippi as you know there's some uh, relief from God's vengeance if you float the casino instead of putting it on land and so they all had to be in the water And as a result, uh, when the, the waves came through, it picked it up and slammed that casino in and crushed it. Or how about a neighborhood in nearby Gulfport where this is all that's left? That's what you call a tragedy. You can go over to the great city of New Orleans and you can see water creeping up on the Superdome. And you look at the roof of the Superdome and know that it's been through a hurricane. Or you can look into a neighborhood. This happens to be the Lower Ninth Ward that we've all heard so much about. That's a river barge. It's about 35 feet wide by 100 and some feet long. And that's a school bus crushed underneath it. And I'll show you a little bit more of that later. That's what happened to a neighborhood. All you see is the chunks that came out of this act of nature. Uh, These are boats on a highway running south into Plaquemines Parish, south of New Orleans. Shows you the force and the ferocity of the storm. And people who say, well, the levees didn't get overtopped. Uh, That boat didn't get up there by itself. I can assure you of that. So what I want to talk to you about tonight is what do we learn from Katrina and other water issues that are facing this country? What should we be doing? What direction should we be taking? And what role might you play in all of this? And I've got to tell you, the views are my own views. Uh, They don't represent the Corps of Engineers, where I happen to do some work right now as a visiting scholar, or the University of Maryland. They're my views of what I think uh, we should be doing. Let's go back to the Lower Ninth Ward. Imagine that people lived in that entire area, and in the center portion there, there's not a house standing. Now, months after that hurricane, there is nothing but pieces of wood there, and there over on the right-hand side is that barge I showed you. It was picked up out of the industrial canal, which is at the lower part of the picture, and flung through the opening. And what you see here is water draining out. The water got inside, the Lower Ninth Ward, and when Lake Pontchartrain fell to a lower level, the water began to drain out. We ought to know how to handle something like a flood, and floods and hurricanes have been around for a long time. Now, I'm an Army person, and I've got to give due credit to the Navy because they were the first in flood control when they started building the ark. It worked for a while. It was a a semi-structural method of dealing with uh, flood damages. And we've, we've learned in U.S. history, North American history, about floods. Uh, we know about Indian mounds in the Midwest. We know that in parts of the lower Mississippi Valley, the mounds were used for burial. They were used for ceremonies. But they were also used to keep people out of the water. Uh, Soto showed up on the banks of the Mississippi River long before there was any development in the Mississippi Basin and sat there for 40 days as the river rose and did not come down. And the floods rushed on sufficiently large that he couldn't cross over. As a matter of fact, he died there on the shores of the Mississippi south of Memphis, Tennessee in Tunica County, Mississippi. He understood what the power of a major storm, a major flood was, and then, of course, we built uh, communities that flooded periodically. What we tried to do is figure out ways around it. But even into the uh, 19th century, and the tw- early 20th century, floods have been a part of US history. We all know the Johnstown flood. In 1927, uh, the great flood of the Mississippi at the time occurred. It was through the lower part of the valley from Cairo, Illinois, where the Ohio joins the Mississippi, all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. Hundreds of thousands of people were displaced. Hundreds were killed. People lived on levees for months and months, much like what we see now in parts of New Orleans. And if you're interested in that flood, there's a great book by John Barry called Rising Tide that's worth your looking at. And then in 1936, we had floods across the Eastern United States and then back into the Lower Valley, the Great Flood of 1936 that spurred federal action, and I'll come back to that in a second. And people tried to deal with this over time. In the upper picture, you see horse-drawn carts pulling material onto a levee. It's been the, the mainstay of the protection against flood waters on most of the rivers of the United States. They, people certainly in the antebellum homes lived on the second floor. They expected in many of those areas that water would come in periodically to the first floor, and that lower slide is one of Sacramento, California, that developed as a result of the gold rush, but all of the hydraulic mining that took place for the gold rush caused the river, the Sacramento River, to fill back up, and whenever there was a heavy rain, Sacramento would flood. We almost face that same thing today. We've spent a lot of money over the last 70 years on flood control and it's protected millions of people and has saved us billions of dollars. We've built uh, dams to, to hold back the waters. We've built levees to keep the water off the people. We've raised the ones that were originally started in 1718 by Bienville on the lower Mississippi. We've built training facilities in the river. You see stone dikes jutting out in the river trying to train the river to stay within a particular location and have the deeper part uh, be always cleansed so that you could carry the floodwaters easily to the ocean. But we've not solved this challenge. As a matter of fact, things are getting worse. Now I recognize, as you look at this, that things are getting worse in terms of absolute dollars because we have more people and more out there to be damaged. But should that be the case, shouldn't we be able to figure out a way to keep people from being damaged by floods? 70 years of flood control, we've been building things to hold back the waters, and 38 years of what many people call the heart of the non-structural program, the flood insurance program that started in 1968. And then increasing flood damages that are occurring, six billion dollars a year, and the BK stands not for Burger King, but before Katrina, because Katrina is gonna run it off the scale. There's just no way you can put Katrina in there. The flood insurance losses alone in Katrina are going to exceed $23 billion. We've got inadequate protection for many of the people who believe they were being protected and New Orleans would fall in that category, and we have inadequate maintenance of levees and other flood structures around the country. This is back to New Orleans, and what you see here is a breach in the flood wall, Uh, and this is one of those that, that water into the city of New Orleans. How does that sort of thing happen, and what do we do about it? How can we handle that? Well, the first thing we do with any emergency is to have response. You had the the levee breach, and now what you see here is a helicopter bringing in 3,000-pound sandbags to try and stem the flow of water into the city of New Orleans. And that was relatively successful over a long period of time, but it caused the city to be flooded. Uh, with two major breaches like this and that earlier one I showed you in the Lower Ninth Ward and you can look at what happened to those homes that were in the path of the levee breach that material you see in the immediate uh, foreground there is material that was at the at the actual levee wall and was moved away by the force of the breach so there are some real challenges out there that need to be worked normally the next thing would be recovery but it seems now today after the first response comes blame, and everybody's pointing their fingers. I would tell you we all have a lot to learn from what went on in Katrina. It's worth examining, but not to point the finger of blame, to learn how the next time the nation should be able to handle a disaster like this, because they will keep coming. Then, of course, you go to recovery. Response, recovery in the short term, recovery in the long term. The immediate recovery was to rebuild the levees so that When you had the next big storm, not hurricane, they would be better protected. And that was done. The question is, what guides the long-term recovery of a place like Louisiana, like coastal Louisiana and coastal Mississippi? I'll talk for a few seconds about this. I think it's important to discuss what we're really trying to do. But more important than that, what do we use as a beacon? What azimuths do we set as we try and deal with this issue of post-Katrina Reconstruction? Do we build higher levees? No doubt you've read in the newspaper, you've seen colleagues, distinguished colleagues of mine and and, uh, other engineers talking about, uh, well, they shouldn't do this or they should do that. Uh, Do we, in fact, build up the levees around New Orleans till they become very, very tall walls that can't be breached? Or do we build Dutch-style floodgates? As you may know, the Dutch have been fighting the ocean, the North Sea, and the Rhine River for centuries. And they continue to work on improvements. The latest have been the surge gates that you see here that prevent the waters of the North Sea or the Rhine River from rushing into the interior of the communities there and causing uh, the levees to be overtopped and to have an absolute disaster. With the imposition of these Dutch floodgates, they set up the, the, the idea, the concept, Never again, we will not have a catastrophe. And I'll come back to what that really means to the Dutch in terms of the size of the the levees and flood walls and floodgates that they they built. How about uh, the places along the Mississippi Gulf Coast that were hit by the 20- to 30-foot storm surge that passed through Gulfport and Biloxi and Wayland? What do we do about them? As I said in the old days, in the antebellum homes, Uh, We had people live on the second floor, and the first floor was used, but could be easily evacuated. Do we elevate homes now? Do we go to something like 15 feet? Are you willing to walk up 15 feet? It makes sense from a hydraulic standpoint. You can pass the water that's rushing in underneath the home, except that FEMA has just given what's called advisory base flood elevations, saying that the elevation at which your house will have to be located if all of our figures turn out to be right the elevation you have to have is probably going to be three to four foot higher than it was in the pre Katrina era in other words they looked at that storm and said we miscalculated the real threat is going to be even higher than that and oh by the way that's only what we call the one percent chance flood of the hundred year flood so maybe fifteen feet too low and maybe you're going to go up twenty feet is that the right way to go well what's going to tell us what we do uh, do we have some sort of policy? The problem is we don't have a national flood policy. If you were to go to Washington tomorrow and say, I'm here to see your flood policy, Senator or Congressman or Mr. President, uh, they would have to say, well, we don't really have one. We're working on it. And that's what I want to talk about. Uh, we have some high-level guidance. Look at the two statements the president has made. And, and this is not a criticism of the president by a long shot. But what he said in the first one, made at Jackson Square in uh, Downtown New Orleans, you all may recall his speech there to try and buoy the spirits of the people of New Orleans, is the Army Corps of Engineers work at the side of the people in the city of New Orleans to make the flood protection s- system stronger than it's ever been. Later in a, a White House press release, they said better and stronger. So the impression is let's make, a, uh, make the levee bigger. Let's have stronger and bigger levies. And oh, by the way, what about those houses that we knocked down? Out of the rubble of Trent Lott's house, Trent Lott had a, uh, the former Senate majority leader, had a house, it's gone now, near the shore, it was completely wiped out, and uh, the President was visiting with him and said, it's going to be a fantastic house when he rebuilds, and I really look forward to sitting on the porch. I don't think the President had in mind walking up 20 or 30 feet to get to the porch, or whether the porch was going to be the only thing there. But what does that mean? It means the President, along with almost every member of Congress, felt in their hearts the sadness for the the really tragedy we saw in New Orleans and along the Gulf Coast and wanted to come back with something that seemed to be responsive. And the reason they had to come up with something that sort of uh, a quick shot at it was we don't have the flood policy as I mentioned. Now we did maybe have a flood policy. If you go back to the 1927 flood The Congress came in after that and said in 1928, it is so important to this nation not to let disastrous floods occur in the lower Mississippi Valley. Why? Because so much of that water comes from places outside the lower Mississippi Valley. That's one thing. Second, so much of our commerce is on those rivers and so much of our economy, agricultural economy, is down there that it is a national issue. So in 1928, they said the federal government will take over flood control on the lower Mississippi. And the levees that were built then, the structures that were put in place then, have not been challenged since. The Katrina catastrophe in New Orleans was from a program against hurricanes, not the protection against the Mississippi. In 1936, when we had those giant floods that I mentioned to you before, uh, the Congress again examined the challenge. And they said flood control is a of, again, control the floods is a proper activity of the federal government. The federal government was going to step in and instead of just doing it in the lower Mississippi, was going to do this flood control across the country. And oh, by the way, we're going to do it when the benefits exceed the costs. Now, it's interesting to know that that's a general statement. And over time, we've managed to change that slightly, and, and I'll come back to that also. But we started with the idea of let's not have disasters. Let's not have repeats of 1936. And so the engineers went out in 1937 and 38 and 39 and then after the war to build flood control structures that would protect against the big flood, conjure up what the worst storms are going to be in this particular basin, what's the most water we could have in this river, and let's protect against that. And that's where they started off in 1936. Then in the the 50s and 60s, a broader approach began to develop. Let's not just think about the economics of, of doing this or just about the idea of building things. Let's take a broader approach. President Kennedy, when he came into office, was part of a movement that would say, we really need to look at the social impacts of what we do in the government. We need to think about what it does to the people. At the same time, the Senate was examining this, and a special committee was looking at our water resources, and they said, we ought to think in a more comprehensive way. We really ought to start planning on a basin level. They'd done that back in the 20s, and in the Depression years, we had some basin level planning. But they said, let's have basin planning commissions so that we don't do individual projects. We do something that fits in the context let's have standards and principles that guide the way we're going to spend our money on federal water projects and oh by the way there are a lot of federal agencies 12, 15, 20 that deal with water let's have a water resource council composed of cabinet secretaries that will bring together the approach we're taking with water and that was all part of this 1965 act and it went into being the water resource council was started and basin commissions were started and in 1973, principles and standards was issued. In 1968, a man named Gilbert White spearheaded an effort. And that's Gilbert White in the lower picture, a uh, former uh, professor at the University of Chicago and president of Haverford College. Said in his dissertation, done right after World War II, he said, "We really ought to have people use the floodplain wisely. You don't necessarily have to build." and protect people from the floods you ought to keep them out of harm's way and one of the ways to do it is to get them to zone now in our country you all recognize that the constitution cedes to the states the responsibility for land use control and it's almost a four-letter word in washington to suggest the federal government do anything to control land use except that in 1968 they passed the flood insurance act the private insurers were not about ready to take on floods as something they could insure against. Why? Because the potential for catastrophe, read Katrina, is so large, they couldn't ensure that they would be able to carry that burden. And so the federal government said, Look, we had in, in 1965 a big Hurricane Betsy, lots of people were damaged. We want to help our people. We'll have subsidized insurance rates for a while for people that live in the floodplain. We'll help them and we'll. Get them involved in making good decisions based on the, the economics of having to buy insurance. But the trade-off for this is, is if we agree in a community to sell federally subsidized insurance, the community will agree to have land use controls over the occupation of the floodplain. They will establish standards, and quickly, they, the nation established a standard of the one percent chance flood, a flood that has a one percent chance in any given year of occurring or is more frequently called the 100-year flood as a standard. So if you, a community, agreed that you would govern your community to not let anybody, after the time you got a map of your community, if you agreed not to let anybody build at an elevation lower than the 100-year flood, the federal government would allow insurance to be sold to you at these subsidized rates, everybody that was there before the map was done. So it was a trade-off, and it seemed to work pretty well. And we had the federal government then behind this program and getting something done. Today there are nearly 20,000 communities in this country that have all or part of the community in the floodplain that are playing under the rules of the 1968 Flood Insurance Act and its several amendments since. Other things were happening then. We had the environment coming along, we all recognized the legacies of pollution, uh, destructive water projects. Projects that we built to help people with flood control did what? They rushed that water, the flood waters to the Gulf of Mexico, but what did they do with it? They took that and dumped it out there. They created a hypoxic zone. They took most of the sediment. They took away a lot of the habitat. So we're building projects that had a negative side. And NEPA came along and said, you better figure out exactly what's happening. We better be able to tell before we do something what are the consequences. So all of these things we're building in this water world of ours and and water economics. If you think back to the 70s, when we were spending lots of money on uh, lots of things, uh, including environmental rehabilitation, people began to say we don't have enough money in the budget to do everything. So what did we start doing? We got into uh, very sharp pencils on our economics for water projects, and we added something called cost-sharing. And it's interesting today when you talk to the people that sat in the room to put that together, cost-sharing says that, uh, after 1986, President Reagan was behind this. Uh, after 1986, if you want a federal water project and you're a local community, you've got to put green up front. You've got to agree to cost share this, because that'll mean you really care about the project. The burden isn't all the federal government's, and it'll reduce the the burden on the federal budget. It, it seems to make sense, except that the question you have to ask yourself is the federal interest in doing things always the same as the local interest. And it turns out it probably wasn't. And we'll come back. And then we had the 100-year flood standard come along. I mentioned before that in 1968, the Flood Insurance Act said you've got to be at this certain elevation. And it was 100 years. Well, what they learned very quickly between 1970 and 1980 is that people were building levees not to the, as high as they used to be, higher you know, enough to keep the worst storm away, they were building levees to the 100-year elevation. Why? Because we have a provision in the National Flood Insurance Program that says if you are protected by a levee that keeps the 100-year flood from flooding your land, you no longer have to be in that regul- regulated zone. You don't have to elevate your homes and uh, you don't have to have mandatory purchase of insurance. Because I forgot to mention, that one of the parts of the, this program is, is if you buy flood insurance, or if you live in the floodplain, you are required if you get a federally insured or federally connected mortgage to buy flood insurance. So having a levee that's over 100 years uh, in elevation exempts you from that program. So guess where people decided they'd build their levees? Not at a 500 or a 1,000 year elevation. They started to drive towards the 100 year elevation. So you have all of these things going on at the same time. Well, what did this result in? Over time, it reduced the water share of the budget. The Corps of Engineers' money for water has been cut 50% in 40 years, and it is going down right now. A lot is going towards Katrina, but that's that's off the normal budget cycle. They decided uh, midway in the 80s that they didn't need a Water Resource Council to coordinate federal agencies. It was a busybody organization, so President Reagan and James Watt, you may remember that name as the Secretary of Interior, abolished that. And basin commissions were getting in the federal government's way and making states mad, so they did away with basin commissions. So in effect, since 1983, there's been no coordinating federal activity in Washington and we don't have basin commissions doing regional planning, with the exception of a couple, the Susquehanna and Delaware, which the federal government has said they won't fund. So it's done by the states working together as opposed to the federal government providing the impetus. And then we took what was called those principles and standards I mentioned that had a, a very large social component. Now, what's the social component of a water project? If you relate it to floods, it says, is there a value accumulating to the community by preventing a flood and giving assurance to the people there won't be a flood so that they are not traumatized by the thought of the flood? the experience of those that have been interviewed after a major flood is I don't want to go back and live in that area I don't want to see that water rushing through my house we know that spousal and child abuse goes up as a result of these floods we know that families are broken up and you can see that clearly in the Katrina that there's a social cost to this that on which you cannot put a specific economic value well that was part of principles and standards principles and guidelines in 1983 said The purpose of federal water resource development is economic development. And there's actually the the phrase that goes after that. It says, don't do grievous bodily harm to the environment. But it, it eliminates the requirement to consider the social aspects of this, which is, turns out, in the New Orleans case and in others that have happened since then, is very, very important. Well, what's the result? Since 1980, what we've seen is the projects have become ad hoc. Mike Grunwald, who writes for the Washington Post, is, is very much anti-administration, anti corps of Engineers, uh, noted that if you want to look at earmarks, that's the magic word in Washington these days, the Corps of Engineer budget, for example, is all earmarks because the only kinds of projects or only kind of opportunities, construction work can be approved are individual projects. They don't say, let's take care of the Susquehanna Valley Let's take care of the Missouri Basin. They say, we want a levee around Hannibal, Missouri. We want a small dam in this particular community. So we deal with ad hoc projects instead of the systems approach. As a result of the fact that uh, there is a a reluctance on the part of the Congress to to really hammer people for doing uh, what would be unwise things, there's been a rebuilding in risk zones. We have something in the insurance program uh, that notes that you can go through a flood several times, not move your house, and still get paid. In, ni- in the uh, latter part of the 90s, the National Wildlife Federation prepared a book called Higher Ground in which they discussed repetitive losses. And they pointed out some people were up in the 12 and 13, 14 times having had their house flooded and still didn't have their rates go up, and they continued to be insured by the federal government. Attempts to have a three-strikes-and-your-out house flooded three times you've got to move you got to do something have failed in the Congress because people don't want to be mean to people who are suffering but I would wonder if you would agree if your neighbors were wrecking their cars on a regular basis and never had an increase in charges and you had the insurance company involved your rates were going up to pay for them you might not like that jumble of standards there is no one standard for what you should build uh, minimal comprehensive planning The rest of the world is going to something called integrated water resource management, bringing together all aspects of our use of water and having this comprehensive both spatially and in terms of the different sectors come together. And lastly, lost opportunities to have used our water resources a little bit better. Well, no direction is the reason. Where did we turn to? What was the guide for where we were going with water? A couple of things happened on the way to my next part of this. And that's the great flood of 1993. This happens to be Jefferson City, Missouri, the capital of the, the state of Missouri. The area across the, uh, from the state capital on the Missouri is underwater. Interestingly enough, as we speak, people are trying to build a huge development in that area and surround it with a levee. Uh, they say, my goodness, we can protect those people, but it didn't look like they did a very good job here. And then in 1997, a a few years after, the Red River of the North, one of our few rivers to flow north into Canada, uh, came out of its banks and destroyed uh, Grand Forks and East Grand Forks, uh, Minnesota and North Dakota. And you see here the, the refuge of downtown, the remains of downtown Grand Forks, where the city caught fire, and because of the water, they couldn't get there to put it out. It's reminiscent of what we saw in Katrina. But these two were very large floods that gain national attention. And as a result, there were two studies done. The first was the review of, uh, from 1993-94 that David Billington mentioned earlier I had the, the good fortune to lead as a member of the White House staff uh, for that period of time to determine what the causes of the flood was to de- and determine what changes we ought to make in our policy. Uh, as fortune would have it, I moved to this Canadian-US boundary commission at the time we were doing the study on the Red River of the North. And so we had the opportunity to talk through big floods and give recommendations to the federal government as to what to do. The first conclusion was that the flood of 1993 and the flood of 1997 were major significant hydrologic events. Now uh, what does that mean? Uh, When I went in to brief the Vice President, President, Vice President Gore, uh, the conclusion read, floods are significant hydrometeorological events and the 93 flood was that and he said uh, there must be something very sophisticated about that i said no sir it means it rained a lot and the the answer to that really is if it rains and rains and rains in the case of 93 and in the case of 97 the previous fall the area had been soaked and soaked and soaked so the ambient conditions the conditions the the predecessor conditions to the flood season of 97 and 93 were filling every little capillary with water and when ice and cold weather came and then rain came on top of that uh, not only did uh, every little bit of this landscape become filled but the creeks were filled and they filled the rivers and the rivers filled the bigger rivers and you had a tremendous rainfall not unlike what the Soto saw not unlike what had been seen in several places before the same thing occurred in 1997 in the Red River the North so What it says is that when you have a lot of rainfall, you're going to have a problem, and it's going to be very difficult to stop all this water from getting on people. The second part is major floods will continue to occur. And something interesting happened to me. I went to testify before a Senate committee shortly after we gave our report, and a senator looked down at me and said, we just had the 100-year flood, and you're saying that major floods are going to continue to occur. You are frightening my constituents. It... uh, and I said, but, sir, it could occur next year. I don't want to hear that. And that's the problem. We can have, as you all appreciate, a 100-year flood three years in a row on a statistical basis. It turns out that when we do that, that what you thought was a 100-year flood turns out to be a 50-year flood because we have such short records of our rainfall that we're just guessing to start with. But we're going to have floods, Mr. President, Mr. Vice President, and that's going to be the challenge. We identified several needs that needed to be taken into account in this country in a, in a flood policy. First of all, we need to have a flood policy that defines responsibilities between the federal government and the state government, local governments, and how about the individuals that locate themselves in the floodplain? When I was here and uh, going to school in 61 and 62 for one of my courses in the Rivers and Harbors program, I did a study of a community in North Jersey, Wayne, New Jersey. And uh, the interesting part about it is I said this area is going to continue to flood unless somebody does something about it. And guess what? Last year it flooded, and it's the same area, and it's going to continue until somebody does something about it. That's the problem with recommendations. People don't know their responsibilities. Do we have a responsibility to continue to support people who live in the floodplain? We ought to make that decision. I don't happen to think it's a good one, but if that's the decision, then we, we codify that and take a balanced approach to fighting protection for those people and mitigating their losses. Avoid unnecessary use of the floodplain. The floodplain is very useful for having ports, recreational facilities. It is a, a place where we initially located because it was close to water. it was flat. it was an area that was part of the initial transportation system and We need to protect the downtown Kansas cities and the downtown st louis'es and places like that Omaha airport. but if you 're not there now. We said, don't go back in, avoid the use of the floodplain. Yet, I just told you about the big development in Jefferson City, how about right underneath the Capitol steps almost in Columbia, South Carolina, they're trying to build a a large development and I take offense at this for senior citizens and um, put them down in the middle of the floodplain and protect them by a levee that could be overtopped. With good fortune, FEMA has said no to that one because they're encroaching on the floodway the most critical part of the passage of water through a flood area. But people all over the country, instead of choosing to build in areas that are a little more difficult, go for this flat land and don't worry about the risks the people there will have once they've lived there. Increase the level of protection. We reported in both the reports that uh, the problem with what we did in 1936 was we didn't codify it as saying you ought to have floods at this particular high level. We said here that at a minimum, Cities, urban areas should be protected to the 500-year level. 500-year level for urban communities, so that they would have a a chance of getting through uh, these big floods. We we said you ought to maintain and upgrade the infrastructure because guess what? Over time, a levee is an earthen structure. Earthen structures settle, they compact, and the original flow line, the original center line elevation begins to sag and you have to go back in there and repair them and as there are uh, problems with dirt that's piled on top of dirt you've got to recognize them and take care of them and Mr. President we weren't taking care of these we need a program to do that we need to identify who's at risk and if we necessary get them out of there there was some success following the 93 flood with the idea of relocating the people who were most at risk and since the 93 flood 27,000 families have been voluntarily moved out of the floodplain in the Mississippi, Missouri, and other places in this country. So there is some sort of a precedent for doing something with that, but we've got to find out who's at risk and let them know. And then we've got to deal with that issue of repetitive losses and something called residual risk. It is wonderful to say that I live behind the levee and I'm safe. That seems like a a reasonable thing to say. The levee probably won't uh, break overtop. But probably is not a good word because it means there is a residual risk. And what just happened in Sacramento, California, is very instructive. As a result of Katrina, uh, we've been on a campaign, several of us, to point out that you are at risk when you live behind a levee. Because in reality, over eons, over hundreds of years, there's only two types of levees. Those that have been overtopped and those that are going to be overtopped. Because eventually that big storm is going to come. And if you live behind that levee, Sacramento, California, the capital of the seventh largest economy in the world, Sacramento, California is protected by a hundred-year levee. A hundred-year levee. There are places behind that levee when the levee overtops or the levee fails, will have 20 feet of water in the house, and nobody knew anything about it. No requirements for insurance. No requirement because they met the hundred-year elevation. Well, guess what? Since Katrina, people have been going out and picking away at their levee and looking at it. And you know who was in Washington this week uh, looking for money? Governor Schwarzenegger was on the Hill. He was at the White House ask, asking for emergency funds to repair the levees and upgrade the levees to a minimum of 200 years around the city of Sacramento. He saw the residual risk. His constituents in the state began to complain about it. They've got over 10,000 miles of levees and they don't know where they all are. So there's some interesting challenges as to who's out there and, and what risk they face. We started with our infrastructure very high, 500 to 1,000-year on the, on the rivers. The Mississippi River uh, levees are somewhere in the 700 to 1,000-year variety. On our coast, we started out with no standard because people weren't concerned about hurricanes. Today, we've sort of leveled off at a 100-year standard, really no standard. And on the coast, we started off to protect Katrina at the 200 to 300 year level. This is instructive. In Japan and the Netherlands, which are akin to what we are in terms of having areas along the coastline that are certainly at risk, on their riverine levees, they have between 200 and 1,250 year protection at a minimum. And I've been to the Netherlands twice in the last six months, and they are looking at raising the level as a result of Katrina of their 1,250 year levees and on the coastline both japan and the netherlands have 10,000 year protection now what does 10,000 year protection mean it means we don't want our levees to overtop we don't build them as high as you need to and they're even talking about for a show raising them to a higher level to indicate that that is not something that they can accept in their particular countries and we need to ask ourselves What is it that we need for New Orleans if New Orleans is going to stay? And I I would tell you that New Orleans will be there uh, 15 or 20 or 30 years from now. But that's the challenge that's being addressed right now. But we don't have a standard against which to base that. So what happened to all these recommendations, the idea of raising things, going to laws? Nothing. Uh, None of these were passed. There was an initial hurry to do something about it. But the half-life of a memory of a flood is about this long. It's pretty short, and you you really don't see much of, in Washington today, people really worried about New Orleans. New Orleans where? They thought about it when people were seen in the streets, but now that they've gone other places, yeah, there's concern about it, but are they really thinking about the long run? Uh, Thank goodness the president is interested in this, and I think that may make a difference, but in reality, we still haven't dealt with the fundamental issues. Now, let me jump to the rest of water, because it's worth talking for a couple of minutes about the, the, the rest of water and what it might be. Uh, we've got other water problems besides flooding in the United States, and it's, it's kind of discouraging to, to see what's the beacon that's helping us to get forward with dealing with these water challenges. How about our drought and water demand? Uh, we're, we're blessed with enough water. It's just in the wrong places. Uh, the people in the Great Lakes state say... Uh, We're certainly willing to give our water to anybody that wants it as long as they come to the states around the Great Lakes to to use it. Uh, They're not willing to ship it somewhere else. In 2002, nearly half of the country was in moderate to extreme drought. That's the map in the upper right-hand corner. And as a result, our action was not to try and look at where we're farming, where we're doing this sort of work, and what we ought to be doing about it for the long run, was to pass a $3 billion drought emergency relief act. No plan has been made. There were drought plan legislations there. No one chose to work them. Let's have the drought relief. Today, we have communities across this country looking for water for the 21st century because we know the 21st century is going to be different. There's going to be challenges with population increases. So we have to deal with that. Our water quality is also at risk. Those of you who can remember back to the 70s and the Clean Water Act and the idea of fishable, swimmable, drinkable water by 1979. We're not there yet. When I was working in the International Joint Commission, we were dealing with the issues of the Great Lakes. There are 43 hotspots, legacy hotspots on the Great Lakes that are polluting the fish, causing other sorts of problems in the Great Lakes. And so far, in the years since we became interested in cleaning up the Great Lakes, We've only really remediated three of those. That's not a very good track record. We've got miles of streams that fail our water quality standards. We've got our estuaries that are impaired. We close beaches all around the country during the summer when there's sewer overflows. Non-point source pollution is yet to be contained. And we have the new threat, and that's the airborne pollution. The idea that today Lake Superior is far more susceptible to pollution from airborne pollution uh, particulates coming out of the sky from the Southwest United States from China that are brought on clouds and then deposited in this lake than they are from pollution around the shores of Lake Superior. What is that doing to us? And what are we going to do about it? And we've, we've developed some new ways to deal with this particular issue. Alien invasive species. Now, you may say that's not water quality, but it's all part of the issue of dealing with our precious water resources. Most of you know about zebra mussels the little tiny mussels that come in and latch themselves together. They cover the intakes to, to uh, water plants. They cover the intakes to cooling towers. Uh, they cost us a lot of money every year. Who pays that? You do in terms of your energy costs, your water costs. And who brought them there? Shippers who had them in the ballast of their ships and then dumped that ballast in the Great Lakes, dumped it in our rivers or in our ports. The sea lamprey killing the trout in the Great Lakes. Been there for a number of years. The Asian carp is this fellow over here on the right-hand side. He's an interesting guy. We brought him into this country because we wanted to clean the bottoms of catfish ponds in Louisiana and Mississippi and Arkansas, and they did a wonderful job. They, they don't eat other fish. They just sort of, they're, I guess, dirt catchers, vacuum cleaners, and they go around and clean it out. But when they had big floods down there, some of these got out, and these Asian carp are big. Uh, they can grow to 100 pounds, 4 foot long. And they started swimming up the river, up the Mississippi River, because they want to get, uh, they're, they're from a colder climate, they want to get farther up in the north. And what they can do is when you startle them, they'll jump about four feet in the air and fly anywhere from six to 12 feet uh, horizontally. And don't you think that would startle you? There's one uh, alleged death for somebody on a jet ski being hit by one of these. But that's not the challenge. I mean, certainly, and, and they had a CBS News uh, cameraman out taking pictures one night of this, and in the middle of all this here comes a fish right through over the cameraman's head and smashed into the individual that he was talking to. Uh, They are are there and they're so there that they are threatening all of the ecosystem of the Great Lakes if they get into the Great Lakes, and they've certainly cleaned out most of the ecosystem on the uh, part of the Missouri River and the lower part of the Illinois River where the two come together. Now we've got electronic barriers, wires in the, in the river to, to send shock waves through the river, electricity through the river, not really shockwaves, and there's some sound barriers being looked at to keep them from getting into the Great Lakes. But they're one of only 163 probable invasive species in the Great Lakes, and when you look at all the rivers of this country and the ports and harbors we have, we're bringing in from the Baltic and from China and from Japan Alien invasive species alien because they're from somewhere else invasive because they're going to do harm to something in this country and what about such things as pathogens that that we might find in these uh, ballast waters that are dumped here from abroad what are we going to do about that our ports and harbors themselves are in transition Uh, we need to be competitive in the world we need to talk about uh, how we're going to be able to deal with the future and yet we're not expanding our ports. We've got an inland waterway system, 25,000 miles of inland waterways, limited size locks, congestion, but we're trying to balance off the economics of this. How should we do that? We need to protect the environment. Uh, We've got threatened and endangered species we're not dealing with. We are looking for in-stream flows and pulses of water that create a tug between those who want to have the water for recreation, those who want it for navigation, and those who want it for in-stream flow. We've got to restore the places we've damaged, like Louisiana's coastal wetlands, like the Everglades, like Chesapeake Bay. What are we doing about that? These are not small items. The ticket for the Everglades is right now somewhere between 8 and 10 billion dollars. Coastal Louisiana restoration prior to Katrina was billed at 14 billion dollars, and you can go on with those others. Uh, We need to worry about our infrastructure. The American Society of Civil Engineers says we have If you look at the total infrastructure in this country, about a $1.5 trillion backlog in either needed maintenance or upgrades. And you can see in the water arena what we get. Now, I don't know. I know at Princeton a D is not a good grade. And we're living in a country where three times in a row ASCE has given our infrastructure a D. And water is a strong part of that. And how about those 3,500 unsafe dams? You know, in the last year, you saw the case in Taunton, Massachusetts, where that 173-year-old dam almost failed. People evacuated the the middle of the town. Three other dam failures in in places where we've lost all the water out of dams at the risk of people's lives. And we've got to have conflicts. That's a billboard in the state of uh, Michigan, and it shows... uh, people from New Mexico and California and Utah and Texas with their straws in the Great Lakes and the clear message from the people in this part of the country, we don't want you trying to come and get our water. Again, I said, if you want to come there, you can have it. But it's enough to cause somebody to pay for a billboard to get that sentiment across. In the Missouri River, the upstream states want to keep water for recreation. The lower states want it for navigation. For 15 years, they've been arguing about it. The ACF is the Apalachicola, Chattahoochee, and Flint Rivers in Georgia, Florida, and Alabama. The Congress gave them a compact, the three states, to agree on water allocation. After five years, they gave up, and they're now in the courts, probably go to the Supreme Court. Not a very useful way to be. The Colorado River is much the same way. The the U.S. government said to the Colorado states, go ahead and, and work out some sort of a compromise. They said we can't do it. And the Department of Interior said, we'll do it for you. I think that frightened them enough. They came up with an interim solution. But we have these conflicts out there. How are we going to deal with them? Well, there are no silver bullets. And and what I want to finish on is by telling you where I think we need to go. How are we going to get there? These are the characteristics, in my view, of the 21st century. It isn't going to get better in the 21st century. The last one uh, is important. volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. We don't know how things are going to be, so we ought to be prepared and ought to have an idea of which direction we want to go. What's missing is vision. Where is the vision for how we want to use this nation's water? And I I have two quick examples. That's High Bridge in New York City. When you go across the George Washington Bridge, continue across Manhattan, and they're going into the Bronx, look to your right the next time, and there's a beautiful remains of High Bridge. It was a part of the New York City Aqueduct. Well, in this part of the country, you all know that New York City gets its water 100 miles away in the Catskills. It gets it in the Delaware Basin and competes with you all for water out of the Delaware. But it was forward-looking enough in the 1800s and the early 1900s to plan a water system that would take care of people 50 and 70 years later. Now, can you imagine a politician today doing that? asking for money to build something for a long way away. How about the George Washington Bridge? You all go over that. When that was designed in the, in the mid-20s, the architect included in the design the sufficient strength, the engineer, yes, uh, sufficient strength to allow a, second, a middle lane to be put into it later and a second deck to be put on that without having to redo the bridge. Who would be able to sell that concept a day of thinking ahead? But we need that kind of vision. What we're missing is national policy and focus. What we really need is the ability to set relationships, develop our priorities, and agreed-upon direction for the future. And unless you consider a jumble of independent, self-actuated laws and regulations as a policy, we don't have any in this country. And it's unfortunate. Let me go back to Katrina and end with Katrina. What are we going to do with the people who live in that part of the world without a vision. If we had a vision, what might we do? Let me jump and say what need is a complicated, integrated, and clearly defined approach to this very complex issue because it's not just bigger levees for New Orleans. This is the area uh, of the immediate New Orleans Lake Poncho train down to the Gulf of Mexico, the coastal Louisiana area. What if we were to deal with effective and balanced flood reduction? Does that mean bigger levees? Perhaps, but we won't know the answer to that, and there's a recent study that a group of us put together on a framework for coastal Louisiana uh, that's available from the University of Maryland Environmental Center that talks about how everything is integrated and linked in this part of the world because we need to restore the ecosystem of coastal Louisiana. But there's another sidelight to it. For every mile of wetlands that you replace or restore, you're knocking three inches, we think, off the surge level of the next hurricane. And wouldn't it be cheaper and better to restore those wetlands and protect the ecosystem that provides habitat for the fisheries that are off the coast, protects the people that live near the coast, than to build higher levees. And so we ought to be thinking about those two together, working on them as a comprehensive approach. Oh, by the way, there's navigation. Because in order to restore coastal Louisiana, the Mississippi is that dark blue line that runs underneath Lake Pontchartrain. What we need to do, because all the sediment's been trapped between levees designed to keep the water off the people, and it's rushing out into the Gulf, we need to dump some of that sediment on the other side of the levees. But if we take too much out, we're going to hurt navigation. And navigation in that part of the country represents the nation's largest port. Southern Louisiana is the nation's largest port system, and it's the link to the 12,500 miles of the inland waterways of the Mississippi Basin. It's the link to uh, commerce abroad. So we've got to keep that. So we have to do all three of those together. And oh, by the way, the water quality in in Louisiana isn't the greatest because they're drinking the water out of the Mississippi that's been used by everybody else in 41% of the United States that forms the Mississippi Basin. And so maybe we ought to look at that at the same time The water supply system, they're using groundwater, problems with that, and infrastructure renewal. Some of the pump plants that drain the interior of the city of New Orleans are, are in terrible shape and we ought to be figuring out what's the best way to roll all of those together and come up with an integrated comprehensive solution. But we need the direction to do it. So how do we do it? Well the bottom line is you people in the audience, you people who are here tonight just by being here have enough interest to listen to me for a little while and I know you're technically informed. We've got to help others develop policy using the technical arguments, the technical information that we can develop and get to them. We've got to educate to others why they're doing foolish things in our nation's floodplains, why we're misusing our water, why we're not taking care of the future of future generations. We're not acting sustainably. We're not even thinking about future generations. And perhaps the toughest for most of you is this to become politically and institutionally involved because we've got to influence decision-makers to make the right decisions. Most of us in academe, most of us who are out there doing something other than politics say politics is a four-letter word and as a result we're not going to mix it up. But we need you to be there at the local level influencing floodplain management decisions. We need you to tell your congressman and senator the next time you see him or her is to say I really want you to look into this water issue. I want you to get behind this. I want you to really understand what's going on so that we, in fact, can be part of the decision process. In fact, it is true that you make the difference. If you become involved, maybe we can make the memory of New Orleans, the memory of the water problems we have, stay around a little bit longer so something is actually done with it. If, in fact, we can, then maybe perhaps you can go down to New Orleans and Mardi Gras in a couple of years and not look as you would today if you were there at all of the Lower Ninth Ward, all of the area next to Lake Pontchartrain, still in ruins, because we're still struggling to figure out what direction we should go. It's a beautiful city. It's a part of the country we need. But it's only the poster child for the fact that we don't have direction on where we want to go with water. Thank you very much. I appreciate your attention. I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have.
1: With respect to using past records to anticipate future events, for example, the calculation of a a 100-year flood or something like that, in your opinion, what what are the likely complications due to climate change and global warming?
2: Enormous. Uh, And that's a wonderful question. As you know, the Egyptians have 5,000 years of records on the Nile River, and and they can be fairly certain of what probably might happen. But they can't handle climate change either, and we're beginning to see climate change. I was on a panel at the ASSS meeting in St. Louis a week ago Sunday, and somebody was there from NOAA, and he pointed out that they have just completed studies saying that they expect now, even with climate change and less moisture in many parts of the country, that when that moisture comes, it's going to be gully washers. And we don't know how to deal with that. That says that there's going to be storms that are more frequent, more intense, and therefore more flooding. Uh, we, we can see that uh, we've already seen, there was an article last year uh, talking about the intensity of hurricanes increasing, that we're getting more of them and they're more intense. Uh, something is happening, and, and I, I think we need to take that into account. The interesting part is, in the, for political reasons, in the flood insurance program, Uh, they're not allowed to develop the insurance rating or make the floodplain delineation reflect what's called future conditions that would take into account climate change or upstream potential development Uh, because the idea is it's unfair to make somebody pay for what might be in the future if you don't know it well if you look back as you are suggesting at our history in this country very short time span of record and and some of the challenges we faced with upstream development It's pretty certain that something's going to happen, and it's not going to mean less water. It's going to be higher water, and we need to deal with that. There's a strong movement to uh, make that happen, and I'm hoping that would be part of it. So uh, we we really have to wrestle with climate change. Right now, we're just ignoring it. Any New Orleans questions? Yes, Yes, ma'am. I think it's okay. So how
0: much more um, would the United States have to spend as a fraction of what you know is already being spent to be protected at the same level as say the Netherlands?
2: Uh, The the thought was prior to Katrina that we would have had to spend two and a half billion dollars in New Orleans to get it to the same level as the Netherlands. In 1965 the Corps of Engineers came in with a plan It looks much like what uh, they have in the Netherlands, surge gates to protect the entrances to Lake Pontchartrain. For a variety of reasons, I mentioned the environmental movement. This is not a hit on the environmental movement. For what they thought were good and proper reasons, they said it would interfere with the the flows. Turns out that the experience of the Dutch is that 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 doesn't happen. Uh, You would have gates, you'd have higher levees, you'd do uh, some other things to help uh, restore coastal Louisiana. All of that would have cost $2.5 billion. We just learned a couple of weeks ago that the loss of wetlands in coastal area was something like 120 square miles we're left Louisiana as a result of Katrina. That means we're going to have to figure out a way to pay to get those back. They're losing 25 to 40 square miles a year anyway. And we just had sort of a three-year bonus uh, in the negative sense. So. I would say it's going to be an expensive program. The Corps of Engineers is charged with by June of this year restoring the levees to where they were before Katrina, a year later, restoring them to the level that was authorized, but for which they didn't have money to repair. In other words, they knew that in some areas the levees had there was subsidence, and the levees were three foot lower than they should have been. and so that and then, in the out years, if, uh, in a two-year study that's already underway, they'll determine what it'll cost to do it. I think it's going to be you know, two to $5 billion, and that's just my quick guess. Contrast that to 100 to $200 billion in losses that are economic. And if you just think back to the people that are in New Orleans, and I've met with people in the Lower Ninth Ward, the minorities that are there, the trauma that you see on their faces, the fact that we have thousands of people that we still don't know where they are, that they're still looking for the dead bodies, they're looking for relatives that have been separated, families broken up, Uh, you know, it's a small price to pay. And the the statement I would make is if we in the federal government are going to have a program that says we're going to protect you with something, whatever it may be, then we sure ought to make it something that will protect them. Because who are they going to believe? They're going to believe the government when it says, I'm from the government and I'm here to protect you. Well, maybe they won't now. Yes.
0: Uh, What is the status of the restoration of Senator Trent Lott's house so he can uh, entertain President Bush in the near future?
2: Well, I think that, uh, to be honest with you, I, I don't know exactly. But I am led to believe that Senator Lott is waiting for the final determination of what the new FEMA elevation will be. Because if your house is more than 50 percent destroyed and you uh, you can't rebuild it uh, under the FEMA rules or if you your house uh, was not in the program, but if you're looking for FEMA funds to help you in any way, you must live by the advisories that they're giving you. And so everybody's waiting until the final figures to make the decision. Uh, my guess is that, that he'll work out something that won't look uh, the same way as it did before. It may be bigger. Uh, there's an interesting lesson. The people in Cancun have been hit by hurricanes before, and what they've done is build along the coastline hotels that are very, very solid. They may lose windows, and, and they have parking to allow the water to go through, but there are structures that could be built near the coastline that would not suffer the same damages that individual homes do.
1: Yes, sir? Okay, this is a two-part question, uh, but the parts are related. Uh, I'm interested in your ideas about what our water resources priorities ought to be in New Jersey with the coast, with the Delaware, with places like Wayne and, and Bound Brook, and so on. Um, and part two is how much of that can a state address without leadership, guidance, and support at the federal level?
2: Well, you've said it very well, I'll take the second one first. It is terribly important, in my view, that we arrive at some sort of an agreement between the state and the federal government, localities, communities, and individuals as to what their responsibilities are in this whole business of water. If you, you understood it, you might be able to deal with it, the landowner. If you understood what you were doing to other people, if communities understood, it's very difficult to be a a county supervisor or somebody at the local level and say no to a friend, especially if that friend has bankrolled your your campaign and those sorts of things. So you need the top cover on some of these things. And so I think that we really need to – I've been the chairman of something called the National uh, Water Resources Policy Dialogue. We've had two of them so far. We've got a third one coming next year sponsored by the American Water Resources Association, at the request of 10 federal agencies who paid us to do it, to have a dialogue with about 250 experts each time to see how we get ourselves out of this morass. Because the federal agencies say we're in, you know, we're sort of in gridlock right now, and we've got to do something about it. So the first thing is that we've suggested that the Congress and the White House form some sort of a commission or group to go out and bring people together, get governor's conference, get uh, loca- local governors and mayors in on this and decide where the priorities are given that we don't have infinite resources. And then decide how much you shift to individual landowners and how much of the responsibility they should pick up. You have a poster child here for one of the, the f- sores and the sides of many people in Congress and certainly the environmental groups. is called beach nourishment, coastal restoration. Uh, who should pay for uh restoring beaches. Should that be the local landowners who live there? Should it be the, the state? Should it be the federal government? Uh, the other issue is we need to decide who can bring people together. The case in the, the Colorado is they said, go away federal government, but until the federal government came in and said, we're going to do it if you don't, they wouldn't get together. We've been unable, as I said, in 15 years to get the Missouri Basin states to agree on an approach to the management of that water. And we, we have the ridiculous parts of the upstream governors suing the U.S. government in court, the lower uh, governors suing the U.S. Uh, government in court, and the Justice Department having to give it to another judge outside the basin who said, Congress, until you straighten it out, uh, the Corps of Engineers can do what they want to run this. They're, they're doing the best they can to interpret the laws. Now, what are the priorities in New Jersey? Uh, I think that, you, that, that, again, there's a large local element in this. Your water quality is certainly uh, the mark of where you're going to be in the future. Are you, in fact, taking care of uh, the legacy pollutants that you've had? Are you dealing with flooding? Are you being realistic in the the flood activities and in dealing with that? Certainly, you have to look at the issue of navigation and and port development. That's a a critical part of uh, this great port you have in the New York metropolitan area. And then what do you want to do with the beaches and, and how do you handle them? I think the decisions on priorities are things that can be reached at a local level and that, that it ought to work its way up to the governor and be supported by the federal government. The federal government ought to be the cheerleader, the funder of many of these things, but ought not to be the total d- decision maker.
0: Uh, you said something interesting uh, in just in passing that you personally seem to suggest think that it wasn't a good idea to actually have the flood insurance and have people live in the floodplain and so on.
2: Can you comment on that? I mean. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, it, it, there's, an, there's You're going to hear a lot about the flood insurance program right now. Or the general idea. Of well, no, but it's a, it, the issue becomes one of the flood insurance program has to pay $23 billion. Uh, they don't have the money. They're broke. Uh, so they have to get it, borrow it from the government. They have to pay that back. They get two, right now, uh, $2 billion a year in revenues. Uh, One billion of that would have to go at least for debt service. And some part of that has to go for administration. They can't dig their way out of the hole. So that, the, the challenge is, are we willing to have a flood insurance program if the benefit to the federal government is not making money off of it, but the benefit is having somebody control land use? that wouldn't otherwise control it. Uh, I actually think that's a good idea. I think that what we're seeing is the number of homes that were built below the 100-year elevation that were there before the flood maps are disappearing. Some of them are being washed away. Uh, Some of them, the people are deciding they just don't want to get wet anymore and are going to move out of the way. And so what you've seen is since 1968 to 75, most of the new development at 100-year level. The problem is that may not be a high enough level. Uh, the issue is, we've suggested also that if you live behind a levee, you ought to buy insurance. Why? Everybody in the area protected by the Sacramento levee ought to buy insurance, even if it was 500-year. Why? They'd get a notice every year in their bill that they are in a place that could flood. I have people who live in southern Louisiana that have a rope attached to their second floor bedroom window down to the rowboat that's on the first floor in case something happens in the middle of the night. You want to know that risk exists, and you want to share part of the overall burden that the nation faces in addressing that. So I'm for the insurance program, but I think it really needs to be uh, realistic in terms of making people, when they do dumb things, pay for their mistakes.
0: Connected to navigable
1: waters, I mean, I, my sense is that that could have tremendous implications on, on flooding if if these wetlands are no longer protected. Do you have any? Can you speculate, uh, even if if uh, the, it, the, that's a very may...
2: interesting one. In in the uh, Federal Water Resource uh, well, Federal Water Quality Act amendments of 1972, they stuck a provision there, Section 404, that said that if dredge and fill material. Uh, is involved in any sort of action in the waters of the United States, you needed to get a permit from the Army Corps of Engineers with EPA oversight. When that came out, every member of Congress that was uh, on the conservative side said that's an intrusion of the federal government. He, they all saw it. They, they uh, saw it, let it pass. They said that's an intrusion. Nothing much happened until the judge in 1975 in the U.S. District Court the District of Columbia said My goodness, that applies to to wetlands that are in small lakes, any river that's over five cubic feet per second, uh, those that are not directly connected, but could be waters of the United States. The initial thought were they were navigable, you could sail ships in them, do that sort of thing. And so for nearly uh, 30 years, the Corps of Engineers has been regulating these and is theoretically the honest broker for doing this. People have been chipping away at it. In the current case, they're saying detached wetlands shouldn't count. And uh, what that will mean is nobody will watch these because uh, there's no other way to to deal with them. There's no federal regulatory interest. My guess is the Supreme Court will uh, agree that that was overstepping their bounds. That will then force the Congress to say we need to pass some legislation that says we need to deal with that. But I wonder if the Congress has the spine to, uh, to to greet that particular issue because they've always many of them have wanted to get rid of it. This this prevents a shopping center from being built in an isolated wetland area. It uh, does lots of things. It's it's a useful tool. It's almost like a mini NEPA in that before the, the core can grant the permit, they have to go through an open disclosure uh, procedure. So I think that, that's a good one to watch, and it'll also tell us something about the tenor of the new Supreme Court. Well, I want to thank you all very much for your attention and your willingness to uh, sit here and think about water for a little while.